Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Anybody But Brian. This is a podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the important issues of today across a broad spectrum of topics from politics, economics, technology, philosophy, and education. The name of the podcast is a small nod to the fact that I've always been that annoying kid in class, whether it was elementary school, high school, college, or grad school, that had their hand up in the air immediately after the teacher asked a question. But in this case, you have the option of turning me off. In the first episode, I plan to dive into the consistent struggle between economic productivity and human jobs. Now, this friction manifests itself in many forms, from the recent debates regarding globalization, to fears of automation, to populist economic theories centered on CEO pay or trade protectionism. In my opinion, the underlying issue surrounding all of these is economic growth. When you look at any economic indicator, whether it's a jobs number from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or profitability from a private company, there is an inherent judgment that if these numbers are growing, it's good. It's a normative judgment in our society that growth is good, period. But when we take these numbers out of the abstract, how much growth can we practically attain? What is the maximum amount of profit a business should target? What's the maximum level of unemployment? These questions don't have clear answers. For example, if there was 0% unemployment, then your grandmother would be working at a retail job until she died at the cash register. The sheer fact that we save for retirement demonstrates that we do not want exponential employment growth over time. And in reality, that's why we measure unemployment against those who are attempting to participate in the workforce and not against everyone in a society. So how does that same type of qualification compare for profitability? If we really drove for maximum profitability, all companies would be focused on lowering their operating costs to as little as possible. The sole focus of any business would be automating the creation of their goods and services in order to rid themselves of labor costs, including salaries, health care, and 401k matching. But if we were able to become so productive that there was no longer a need for nearly any human labor, who would buy these goods or services? Without a working populace, there's no consumer consumption. So clearly reaching maximum automation and profitability is not a true goal either. Economic philosopher John Stuart Mill identified this problem as far back as the 1880s. Mill said the increase in wealth is not boundless. He believed growth wasn't a permanent feature of the economy because nothing could grow forever, and we wouldn't want it to. Instead, Mill saw the end of growth concluding in what he called the sanctionary state, a sustainable equilibrium in which there would be a well-paid and affluent body of laborers with no large fortunes, no estates that could be passed down to next generations, and instead a society that had sufficient resources to take care of basic needs and afford all citizens the ability to have leisure for both their minds and bodies. However, when do we know when we've hit this sanctionary state level of productivity? For nearly 150 years, GDP per person in the United States economy has grown at a remarkably steady average rate of around 2% per year. Starting at around $3,000 per person in 1870, um, per capita GDP has risen to more than $50,000 by 2014, 
This is a nearly 17-fold increase. Yet during that time, we had the Great Depression and the Great Recession, and I don't remember any president saying that we have achieved maximum growth. Why is that? In my opinion, it's because CEOs and politicians are constantly driven to a standard of growth that is not only unattainable for the companies and economies that they manage, but it might be harmful for the people within the economy outside a particular investor class. In his book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, Douglas Rushkoff explains we are caught in a growth trap. The rules of our economy were invented by a particular human beings at particular moments in history with particular goals and agendas. By refusing to acknowledge the existence of this man-made landscape and our complicity in perpetuating it, we render ourselves incapable of getting beneath the surface of the system and instead begin to blame everything on the invisible hand of the market. Let me give an example. How do you determine if a company is making the right amount of profit? There's no specific textbook definition that outlines what percentage of profit a specific business in a particular industry is supposed to make. Instead, we often rely on comparable company analysis between different firms in specific industries as a signal of what level of profit is attainable. Let's take a look at Twitter, for example. After going public with what at the time was a revolutionary new application, it began making of millions of dollars in profit very quickly. In fact, in a single quarter in 2015, it made $43 million of pure net income profit. Yet it was considered an abject failure by the Wall Street Journal and many of its investors. How can an idea that is made rapidly, tens of millions of dollars in profit, be considered a failure? The key is that expectations, especially in the digital age, have completely transformed. The disproportionate relationship between capital and value, or the invested money versus the actual revenue, is completely out of whack. Taking a look at another social media example, when Snapchat first came into the scene, its initial public offering had a market capitalization millions of dollars higher than almost any product company including consumer goods companies like Keurig Dr. Pepper, which were making millions of dollars more in revenue than Snapchat at the time. In today's economy, investors are paying for the promise of a business more than the actual business itself as they chase this 100x growth wave. Unfortunately, this paradigm shift, largely driven by digital companies, devalues human labor and demands more revenue per employee. But is this type of growth really beneficial? As we examine market trends and innovation, the comparable company analysis within an industry might look great on the surface. However, these growth targets could demonstrate a profit percentage that's achieved by extremely short-sighted measures that could damage not only the long-term viability of the company, but the economy on the whole. For example, taking a look at AIG in the mid-2000s, there were huge short-sighted benefits on a quarter-by-quarter basis by taking in fees to ensure credit default swaps with other financial services companies. But when it all came down in 2008, AIG was almost $85 billion in the hole and had to be bailed out by the American public. This balance between long-term and short-term goals is consistent on Wall Street and also feeds into the growth trap that Rushkoff mentioned earlier. Another example of a firm that fell into this trap was General Electric. While looking at overall market trends, specifically in the financial services industry, GE saw that financial companies became some of the biggest players in the economy. 
From the 1950s through 2006, the role of financial services firms actually grew from 3% to 7.5% of the total economy. This inspired GE to move away from its traditional industrial products and more into the focus of GE Capital, with under the guise that money makes money faster than people or companies can create value. In the mind of CEO Jack Welsh, this meant that the richest people and companies should therefore position themselves as far away from working or creating things as possible and, much more importantly, get themselves closer to the money spigot. This meant selling off industrial businesses like appliances to foreign firms while GE expanded its capital business, lending to consumers, and selling insurance. This change ultimately led to the elimination of many American middle-class jobs in manufacturing, in addition to increased exposure to financial turbulence during the 2008 financial crisis. Overall, this strategic shift was all in the name of chasing corporate growth. Welsh and his contemporaries viewed their firms as ever-growing entities that must chase an infinite growth target rather than simply a business that must generate enough revenue and profit in order to pay their employees. This fundamental difference in the way that these CEOs viewed their firms versus their employees contributes to the increasing divide between CEO and employee pay in the way an average worker views their company versus the chief executive. The idea is that we as a society need to balance this desire for growth, which what's best for each other and our citizens. We need to make the economy work for us rather than the other way around. And if we don't, instead of ending up in a Star Trek era world where automation allows for a universal basic income and time dedicated to research and leisure for all, we may instead be becoming robot mechanics and troglodytes servicing the capital of an ever-shrinking upper class. While this analogy may seem a bit dramatic, my central point is that we need to keep the humanity in the economy. Looking back on the ancient bazaars of the Middle East, the value delivered by different artisans was clear to the consumer. And as we transition to an ever more digital marketplace, we can't forget the value of the human intellectual and physical capital that go into the goods and services that we use every day.